lady don't take no listeners. I really hope you downloaded and listened to that last episode with the honorable, the badass, Dr. Angela Davis. Now, here's the thing. Not only did we have an amazing conversation, but the questions from the audience members were equally amazing. Angela's answers were freaking brilliant. So we had to do a bonus episode. Obvi. <laughs> Let's go back to Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. and hear what the audience had to say. Enjoy. First question. One out of three adults in Ward 8 can't read. One out of three adults in Ward, in ward eight, 8, which is, which is where, where we're we at right, right now. now. Cannot Can't, read. Yes. Is the convo about prison abolition truly accessible to these people, mm. even though they are heavily impacted by this issue? Uh-huh. How do we make this convo about them accessible to them? Thank you. You know, uh, many years ago, uh, when a number of us were coming together to try to think deeply about possibilities of abolition and what might be abolitionist alternatives to prison, one of the things we talked about was education. And of course, when you talk about education, you have to recognize that the schools are so polluted with the notion that uh, black children have to be disciplined, you know, just as black and other adults have to be disciplined in prison, that kids are really only attending um, finishing schools for prison, for jail and prison. So not only do they not learn how to read and, and write, they don't learn how to dream. So, you know, it's really not about the mechanical process of learning to read. It's about learning to think. It's about learning to conceptualize. It's about learning to imagine something that is different from the conditions we experience uh, at this moment. So a lot of people who end up going to prison well, among all of those who end up going to prison, the ones who save themselves are the ones who teach themselves to read, to write, to think, to dream. And at this moment, there is so much amazing intellectual ability behind bars you know, a lot of us like to say, if you could just let, you know, the sisters, the brothers, the siblings who are in prison doing all of that studying now, if you could let them out, they will help us find the answers to our problems in the larger world. They will help us to, you know, move toward a radical future. So, I, you know, I think that you don't want to talk mechanically about learning how to read uh, because you know that's neither here nor there you can learn how to read and you can become a fascist you know what i mean but it's 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 really about cultivating the possibility of thinking deeply and helping us prepare for the revolution or helping us push the revolution forward, because I don't think the revolution is one event, is what we're doing right now. It's ongoing. Uh, 
And I think that there are probably proportionally more people behind bars who are willing to engage in, you know, engage their intellect, their emotions, their talents in those collective activities than there are anywhere else in the world. So yeah, open up the gates. Let them all out. Thank you. But, but I can say also that that's not the only um, thrust of abolition. Abolition is about creating a new society, you know, making it possible uh, for people to live fulfilling lives so they do not end up going into these places that we call prisons. All right, let's keep it moving and grooving. You just spoke about education, and the question before that was about the fact that so many people in war, they can't read. Give us three steps toward abolition that people in this room can walk out of this room and execute. You know, first of all, I could probably do about 10 or 20, but I'll, I'll try to stop at three. Uh, you know, one thing, one thing is to talk more about what is happening to our people who are in prison. Involve them in your conversations. Don't forget that they are locked away. Uh, in a couple of days, in about two days, uh, we're going to go in to see Mumia Abu-Jamal, you know, who, is, who has helped us think not only about issues affecting people in prison, but about issues affecting the world. Uh, so, yeah, be aware of the fact that there is so much a beautiful energy locked up inside. Go and visit somebody. Go visit somebody. If you know someone, go visit them. And if you don't know someone, figure out how you can get into a jail or a prison. I'm telling you, well, Gina will uh, uh, remember that when we organized Critical Resistance back in 1998, we had a go-to-prison week. And we encouraged everyone to go to prison. I mean, not go to prison, but, you know, figure out how to get in. Go visit an individual. Uh, use your skills as a teacher, as an artist. Uh, Share what you know and, and your capacity with people behind bars. Uh, so that's another thing. And I'm also going to say that we can't assume that it's only those who are in prison who suffer the effects of our carceral society. You know, we all think in carceral terms. So many institutions as I was saying before, schools, schools that are supposed to teach kids how to read and imagine and think and learn end up teaching them, you know, how to, how to walk through a, a, a metal detector, uh, you know, get rid of all of the school resource officers uh, because activities in schools that used to be considered what kids do. You know, this is just how kids behave. They're becoming criminalized, and children end up going to juvenile detention facilities for talking back to the teacher. And you're supposed to talk back when you think something is not right. 
But let's, yeah, let's also think about the ways in which we have been influenced in our own emotional responses. You know, how many of us think punitively, think about retribution when someone does something to us and it upsets us? How many of us immediately go to, how can I get back at that person? What can I do to her or him or them? And that's, that's the, the carceral logic of the state. So that's four. I'm at number four. So I can keep going, uh, but, but I think you understand. What, but thank you so much for your work. Awesome word. We're going to get to two more questions. Please make the connection between, if you can, the black and brown struggles in America and the Palestine struggle in the context historically in Israel and America. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, because I was beginning to think that we have spent all of this time talking and we've stayed in the U.S., you know, as if a world doesn't exist, as if struggles aren't happening, you know, all over this planet. And certainly the struggle for Palestinian justice for justice for Palestine, the struggle against the occupation, against the Israeli occupation of Palestine is one of the most important struggles of our time. Talking about fascism, you know, talking about apartheid, talking about racism. And I think it's also especially important for um, black people and people of color and those who struggle against racism to realize the extent to which Israel has claimed uh, this um, exemption, this exemption to charges of of racism uh, because of the fact that uh, it, the state of Israel was created to give those who suffered under the Holocaust a safe space. Now, we all believe that people deserve safe spaces uh, and places to live and thrive and love, but you cannot excuse the treatment of another people, of the Palestinian people, by pointing to uh, the fact that Israel is a home for the Jews. I mean, I'm totally in opposition to anti-Semitism. As a matter of fact, I believe that you are, if you are opposed to racism, if you are opposed to anti-Semitism, you also have to be opposed to the occupation of Palestine. If you're going to be logically consistent uh, and speaking about that can, can I say just a word about the Ukraine? Of course go for it. Oh I'm not supposed to say the Ukraine, I'm supposed to say Ukraine I'm sorry, I'm remembering when it was a part of um, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and, 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 and my heart is with people who are suffering as a result of Russian imperialism in, in, in Ukraine. But the fact that the U.S. government is spending billions of dollars to buy military equipment to send to Ukraine 
while people are suffering in Mississippi. I mean, that makes no sense at all. And, you know, as, as I am in solidarity for those who are fighting for their lives in Ukraine, I also have to point out that there's some racism involved in the way in which Ukraine has been represented as the country that deserves solidarity uh, from people all over the world. You know, what about Afghanistan? You know? What about the Kurds? I, I mean, what about Iraq? Anyway, you see uh, the point that I'm trying to make. So. Thanks for the question. No, thank you. Give it up for that answer, y'all. Gee. All right. Let's just scoot on right by here. All right, we have a question from a special individual. Hi, I'm 10 years old, and my world is probably very different from your world when you were 10. I live close to here, and in my world, I see a lot of gentrification, inequality, and racism. Yet, I experienced a lot of kindness, community, and happiness. When you were around my age, what was it like, and what was something that influenced the work that you do now? Thank you so much for your question. You're so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I can remember when I was your age. I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, which was at that time the most segregated place in the country. Um, and I was already um, doing what you might call activist things. We didn't use the term then, but it was about feeling that we as black children uh, were valuable, that our lives mattered uh, when everywhere we turned, we heard, you know, white people saying that we didn't, we didn't deserve any attention at all. We didn't deserve, I mean, our books at school were the books, the, the torn and tattered books that the white children had cast aside. So, and we knew that. We knew that we were, we were, we were reading throwaway books. We knew that our schools were so much worse because the white children's schools were so much better. And we could often, from my elementary school, I could look up over the hill and see this beautiful brick building where the white children went to school. You know, one of the stories I tell, I've told this story many, many times, uh, is that we used to have these great games in my neighborhood. You know how kids play hide and go seek? You play hide and go seek? Okay, well, we, we figured out a game that was kind of similar to hide-and-go-seek, but it was about running across the street where we weren't supposed to go because white people lived across the street, and the street was the borderline between the black neighborhood and the black neighborhood. So we dared each other to run across the street, and, th and then you could actually be the winner if you would not only run across the street, but if you could run up the steps to, to a white person's house and ring the doorbell and get back to safety, get back home <laughs> before you were caught. 
So we used to play a lot of games like that, which were about resistance. Uh, you know, it was learning how to resist through our play and through our joy. Uh, and this is one of the things I'd like to emphasize, that being involved in struggle and organizing, it's not, it doesn't have to be something that um, you associate a lot of sacrifices with. I say all the time, people thank me for my sacrifices. And I say, I don't think I, I, don't think I sacrificed anything. I had a beautiful life. And I'm continuing to have a beautiful life. <laughs> but, um, but the final thing I'll say is that when I was 11, which is one year older than you are now, I participated in a interracial discussion group at uh, my church, which was the first congregational church. So we would meet um, every Friday and, and talk with white kids. It was like black kids and white kids talking to each other. And as a result, the Ku Klux Klan uh, burned uh, the church where we were meeting. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what I was doing. But I was also having fun too. You know, and I was, I was also reading, so I would say it's so important to read. And especially now, there's so much more literature available uh, from people not only in this country and people of all you know, racial backgrounds, but all over the world. So I would encourage you to, to read, think, play, organize. Yeah. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak, less it's something worse saying, don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way, her hips way furiously. Love y'all. Luxurious. Carries herself like the cutest, most perfect.